Welcome back, everyone, to another fantastic episode of Fraternity. I'm your little brother, Danny. And I'm your big brother, Sean. And we're back. And this is the beginning of our season two. And we're going to be here for the whole year long. We're ready to kickstart 2022 with an awesome movie and get right into it. Ain't that right, Sean? We had a nice break, but we're ready to deep dive into the horror and eclectic films. Most definitely. And before we do that, let's take a moment to welcome back all of our great listeners. Welcome back to Fraternity, everybody. And if you're new here, warm welcome to you as well. You are indeed listening to Fraternity. It's a celebration of horror films hosted by Danny and myself. I'm the older brother who has spent his entire life consuming horror films. My younger brother, Danny, has not. So I share my fond memories and personal experiences with these films so that I and all the other lifelong horror fans can connect and reminisce on those experiences, while Danny shares his fresh perspectives to contrast and compare with other first-time viewers as we take a look at whatever film we may be covering that week. So whether you're a lifelong horror fan or just getting started, we hope to provide you with an entertaining and insightful experience. Yeah, Sean's been in this horror game for a long time now and it's still early on for me but we had a really great time doing those first episodes last year and like I said we're ready to really give it our all this year and really cement ourselves in the podcasting space. Definitely and we aren't the only horror related property making its return today. You're right you're very right. The Scream franchise returns to theaters today with its fifth film entry in the franchise. So in honor of that alignment, we're going to be taking a look at the film that started it all back in 1996. We will be covering and celebrating the original Scream. So Danny, have you ever seen Scream? Uh, Yeah, I actually have seen Scream before and... I've brought this up before, but a couple years ago, I think like 2016 is when I just decided to get into horror on my own accord, watch a couple movies. Uh, I watched Hellraiser back then. I watched A Nightmare on Elm Street. I watched The Stepfather, two of those movies we covered. And this is another movie that I watched back then, and now we're about to cover. So yeah, it's been a while since I saw it. I've only seen it once up until now. And yeah, I'm really excited to talk about it. Is this the only one you've seen in the franchise? Yeah, I haven't seen any of the sequels. I didn't even know that they were all directed by Wes Craven up until his death. After rewatching Scream, I really want to see the rest of the films and, you know, maybe go see this new one in theaters while it's there. Yeah, I hear you. Scream is a really interesting film. It was a big deal and a game changer for better and occasionally for worse. And being a 12-year-old horror fanatic in 1996, at the time this film definitely felt like it had been made for me. So it was definitely special. I want to preface by saying that I am not a 90s horror basher. It was definitely an interesting time in horror history. There are things you can bash in the 90s that came before Scream, as well as after. But I think that with the passing of time, 
a reappraisal has revealed some real gems that went underappreciated at the time. Horror wasn't dead. Certain genres were. But the direct-to-video market was cranking out some real masterpieces. Theatrical horror had certainly collapsed. And I think that's what puts a bad taste in people's mouths when reflecting upon the 90s in regards to horror. We were in the diminished returns era of the staple slasher franchises. Stuff like Freddy's Dead, Jason Goes to Hell, and Halloween 6 were not doing the genre any favors. When reanalyzing Scream, I found this the most interesting. Scream isn't one of my favorite films. I barely revisit it these days, in all honesty. It is a fine slasher film that came out at the right time, when something like it was needed most. And when you look at those fading franchises, we were definitely operating in the realm of the supernatural slasher. We had iconic villains like Freddy Krueger, Jason Voorhees, and Michael Myers. Pinhead, Chucky, and Leatherface were still doing their thing. Scream brought the slasher film back to a certain reality-based killer. It reintroduced the whodunit scenario. It made the killer a member of the group of friends. And that wasn't unique. The slasher films of the very early 80s did this all of the time. What did make it unique was having the killer, or killers, and cast members being aware of the existence of horror films. I've seen so many horror films, and I'm hard-pressed to think of many before Scream where it made it inherently clear that horror films even existed in that universe. In Scream, it's not even a question. There are so many references to horror franchises and slasher structure that it makes the film exist in our universe. And that is what this film did so brilliantly and why I think it was so successful, in giving us a masked killer grounded in reality, and giving the characters a point of reference in regards to horror, it gave us something to fear. It made slashers scary again. Which, if you want to boil it down, was the problem with the big franchises. They were no longer scary. I'm not going to say that Scream is one of the scariest films around, but there's no denying that it was tense and frightening in a packed theater in 1996, watching that brilliant opening sequence. I was able to see Scream in the theaters multiple times, thanks to our parents. I remember going to the dollar cinema. Dollar cinemas. Poor things no longer exist. But it was late in the cycle of Scream, and I was able to see it on a double bill with Wild Things. And it didn't get much better for a 12-year-old in 1996 than that, if you know what I mean. I remember Mom and I... We're at a video store one day renting films, and they actually had copies of Scream for sale at the register, and Mom just bought it for me. She's like, you want Scream, right? And I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> so I'd say that was a testament to how much I enjoyed this movie. And with all that said, I think I've said enough. I'm in no way a Scream franchise super fan. I haven't even seen the third film or any of the TV series. I've seen the first, second, and fourth film, but I'm interested in seeing the latest entry also, and I'm looking forward to starting our second season with this movie. And I'm sure we'll be working our way through the series over the next few years, so there's no better time to start than now, right? So you, uh, you're basically Randy. How dare you? <laughs> Everyone's a suspect! No. I admit it. I'm the pri- I'd be the prime suspect. <laughs> <laughs> Randy, 
Randy is definitely the the audience member character, you know? Right, yeah. We, we're in his shoes. Well, let's Randy it up, huh? Let's do it. But before that, I just want to say, you can follow us on Twitter. Our at is at Fraternity. That's at Fraternity. You can email us. Our email is Fraternity at gmail.com. That's Fraternity at gmail.com. You can send us comments, questions, anything at all. Send them our way. We'll be happy to reply. We have a YouTube channel. You go over to YouTube in the search bar, you type in Fraternity. You'll find our YouTube. And we upload our episodes over there on YouTube with a little bit of a visual treat. So go over there, see what I'm talking about. Give us some likes, subscribe, hit the bell so you always get notified. And keep up to date with what Fraternity is doing at all times. We open with a pretty bland 90s title card, accompanied by a ringing phone and some disembodied screams. Now, say what you will about Scream, but the slasher genre is known for the opening kill, and they've really crafted a great one here. It's such a love letter to horror, and the whole movie is, but specifically this scene is just like the way it's crafted and all the little references here and there that you pick up on if you're a true horror fan. It's just great, and I mean, like you said, uh, you felt like this movie was made for you. I'm sure plenty of other people felt like that and felt, you know, right at home with a movie that was saying, you know, all that horror that you love. Yeah, we love it too. Definitely. We see a young Casey Becker answering a phone and informing the man on the other end that they have the wrong number. But this person calls back to apologize and displays an interest in speaking with Casey. She hangs up again and goes about fixing some popcorn on the stove. The person calls back again, and things develop into some playful flirtation and scary movie talk, and we get the immortal, do you like scary movies line here? As Casey walks about the house, the conversation takes a sudden and sinister turn when the man on the other end says he wants to know who he's looking at when Casey asks why he wants to know her name. From here, things continue to get more sinister and threatening, and this phone stalker calls Casey Blondie, causing her to panic and run around the house to secure the entrances. And there's this great line here when Casey asks the person what they want, and he responds, To see what your insides look like. To see what your insides look like. (laughs) The doorbell rings and startles Casey, and she goes to call the cops, but the phone rings in her hand. And it's here that we learn that Casey has a football player boyfriend who's supposed to be arriving soon. And when this menace on the phone asks her if his name is Steve, Casey panics and asks how he knows that. And I like here he says, turn the porch light on again. A nice touch. So she does turn the porch light on. We see that Steve is tied to a chair on the back porch, kind of beat up. And the man on the phone then forces Casey to play a game of horror movie trivia. When she gets a question wrong, Steve is murdered. And he gets gutted in the darkness on the porch. But we do eventually see him sitting there with his entrails spilling out across his legs. Yeah, it's uh, pretty gory. Yeah, it's nasty. The killer then asks Casey the third question, which is, What door am I at? And when Casey refuses to answer, A patio chair gets thrown through the glass door, and Casey takes off running, 
And it's here where we get our first glimpses of Ghostface. So what are your thoughts on the Ghostface costume? As a kid, it's kind of hard to escape it. I mean, it's just one of those things that's in pop culture and you just, you know what it is. But I really do like the costume in this film. And like you were talking earlier, Scream took the horror genre and kind of grounded it again with the killers just being, you know, two dudes, two normal dudes. Again, that works itself into the costume, too, where it's just, this is just a Halloween store costume. You know, it's like, he's got jeans and boots underneath this little, this cheap, uh, <laughs> like, drape and cloth and mask. And it's just, it's really effective, and it's iconic, obviously, and I really like it. Cool. Yeah, I do, too. It's, uh, that first shot you see of him is him just running across really fast. And you're like, oh shit, you know, (laughs) (laughs) which Casey's like that because she grabs a knife and she manages to sneak outside and she's peering in through the window and we get some great ghost face stalking shots here of him like crouched down and creeping around the house and it's filling with smoke at this point because the popcorn is burning on the stove and it's here that Casey notices her parents car approaching. And as she looks in the window once more, she's startled by her best look at Ghostface yet as he turns around and spooks her. And he breaks through the glass and a struggle ensues, but she manages to knock him back and make a run for it, only pausing briefly as she walks past Steve's corpse. So Casey makes her way to the side of the house, but Ghostface bursts through a window and knocks her down. And we then get this excellent slow motion shot of him chasing and catching her and just driving the knife deep into her upper chest. They continue to fight on the ground, and Casey breaks free. She struggles to get to and call out for her parents as they enter the house, and she ends up collapsing on the front porch, and I really like the shot of her reaching up and grabbing the mask off of the killer's face. And there's this faint look of recognition as we see the knife elevated in the air before plunging down into Casey. Yeah, I really like that shot, too, and it's, like, just signifying, like, yeah, this is gonna be a whodunit, and obviously it's someone Casey knew, but who is the killer? Or killers? We'll have to wait and see. (laughs) Now we get something we don't often get in opening kills, or slasher kills in general. The parents coming home to the scene of the crime and discovering their dead child. So good. Puts this scene just way over the top. They go outside and they see Casey's dead hanging body with her inside spilled out, hanging from a tree. You know, you can just imagine the turmoil and trauma. Yeah, for sure. It's no good. Not a good situation. Thank you, Wes Craven. (laughs) (laughs) It definitely gave me like Last House on the Left vibes. So this movie's 25 years old. So I don't think we need to keep any secrets. The killers in this film, which you should know if you're listening to this, are Billy and Stu. So one thing I think we could do is theorize who is Ghostface at certain points in the film. Because it never is clarified exactly. So did you have any thoughts about who was on the phone during this scene and who was Ghostface? I don't know, because... the this opening scene, it really doesn't give you any hints at all. Honestly, any any guess would just be a shot in the dark. Did you come up with anything? This scene is the one I've been most back and forth on. 
because we do learn some facts here later on about the fact that Stu dated Casey for a while. Right. I want to say that it's Stu on the phone. I think they're both there. I think... Yeah, I think at the very least they're... I mean, I think most of the time they're together. Sometimes they aren't, but uh, yeah, definitely here they're together. But if uh, you don't think Stu would want to be the one to kill Casey then? I actually, I actually feel like this is the one time where they're both in Ghostface costume. And I think we see them both in costume. I think Stu is on the phone. I think Billy kills Steve in the dark. But then I think it's Stu who breaks into the house first and gets knocked down by Casey. And then I think it's Billy who smashes through the window and gets her and ends up killing her. That's my assumption. Yeah, I had that thought too. Like, I think both of them are probably in the costume here with how kind of fast they are. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that's it's fun to theorize. Uh, if you have any theories on who's in the Ghostface costume when they're on screen at what time, you can email us. We'd love to hear your theories. Yeah, definitely. We want to know what you think too. We transition to meeting our final girl after this opening kill, who is Sydney Prescott. She's up late on her computer as her boyfriend, Billy, sneaks into her room through the window. And I gotta say that I find some of this a bit cringe. I like a lot of the movie reference dialogue in this film, but the whole bit about Billy watching The Exorcist and equating their relationship to being edited for television has not aged gracefully, if you ask me. They were heading on to an NC-17 rating, Sean. And then they turned to made for TV. <laughs> yeah, I I got that. <laughs> yeah, it's uh it's certainly cringe, but uh I don't know. I think uh Billy sells it here with being cringe, especially when you know like just how horror obsessed he really is, and this is probably ha- really how his like fucked up mind works. <laughs> you know what else? I've never watched this scene and thought, well fuck. Billy is the killer. And as we will learn, he has a motive that hits real close to home for Sydney. So he really is a sick and twisted bastard here. Yeah, he's been basically planning this, you know, his own movie for, as we'll soon learn, more than a year at this point. So they do settle on an over-to-close PG-13 rated relationship and call it a night. And after that, it's the next morning and we're off to school. And when Sydney arrives at school, we see the community is in the midst of a media frenzy. Cops, news vans, reporters are all over the campus reporting on the tragic murder of Casey and Steve. Sydney runs into her friend Tatum, who informs her on what's going on, equating it to an event that affected Sydney, but stopping short of saying what it was. And it's our first hint of a tragedy in Sydney's life recently. I do like when Tatum is telling Sydney what happened and she says they weren't just killed. We're talking like splatter movie killed. (laughs) 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 I think Tatum definitely has some of the better horror reference dialogue in the movie. Yeah, she has a couple good lines. Uh, Yeah, I like when Sydney's like, wow, I sat next to her. (laughs) Tatum's like, not anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there is a real callousness and desensitized reactions by some of these kids 
we'll see. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe commenting on how desensitized we become watching these films, Sean. <laughs> All this horror that we consume. Uh, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> desensitized? What's that? <laughs> We do get a glimpse of a tabloid reporter named Gail Weathers who will become entangled in this sordid tale. And I think it's interesting because I feel like this movie does want to critique certain things, but sometimes it feels like it really doesn't say anything at all. Sort of like this media frenzy we're witnessing here. This is something that happens all the time. The sharks come feeding on the blood in the water, but as we know, eventually they leave. The trauma visited upon the town and those closely involved remains. So it is interesting to make one of these journo types part of the story. I'm not sure it pays off or delivers any greater meaning, but I appreciate it. I think it works. Yeah, I think uh, the character of Gail Weathers is likable and totally fits into the story with how she's related to uh, Sydney and the past trauma that happened in this town. And yeah, I don't know. I. I I never really thought it amounted to anything more than anything deeper than surface level. Yeah, I feel like this movie wants to speak on themes like desensitization and media and sensationalism. But I think it just doesn't try all that hard. Like, it's very surface level critiquing. Yeah, uh, yeah, I agree. It It never gets so deep to where you're like huh, that's a good point. You know, it's just like, yeah, I, I get it. I see what you're doing. But at the same time, I think everyone involved just wanted to like, like I said, this is kind of a love letter to horror as a genre. And I think that's its biggest strength is just being, you know, the celebration. For sure. For sure. So speaking on trauma, we get a great shot of Sydney sitting in class and she's staring at the empty seat that used to be occupied by Casey. I do like that shot. It's very simple, but very poignant. So Sydney is summoned to the principal's office. As we learn, the police are conducting this school-wide interview. And we get another hint at the past tragedy in Sydney's life here. But all we really get here is the introduction of the indomitable Deputy Dewey Riley. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta love Dewey. You gotta love David Arquette. You just do, okay? That's right. This is our second movie with David Arquette, isn't it? You know what? I was surprised by how much I enjoyed Dewey on these viewings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love him. It's He's a great character. He's funny. Like He has some really funny lines. <laughs> and it, it, it never comes off as hammy. Like It's just like legitimately funny. Yeah, he just does what he's doing to perfection. So yeah. I I never gave him much thought before. Like I was always like, oh David Arquette playing a doofus cop, but watching it now, like, it's so well done. Like he's brilliant in this role. Yeah, I agree. Afterwards we meet our main group of friends sitting by a fountain for lunch. We see Sydney, Billy, and Tatum, but we get introduced to Tatum's boyfriend Stu and another friend. The cinephile himself, Randy. And again, we've got our two killers present here. But even without that knowledge, you have to conclude that these guys are a couple of fuck rags, as Billy puts it. <laughs> yeah, they're really making light of the entire situation and 
Stu and even Randy are just making jokes and it's clearly making Sydney uncomfortable and it's pissing Billy off or Billy's playing the role of a pissed off boyfriend because it's making Sydney annoyed and Tatum's getting annoyed too. Yeah, I really like the scene how we get all these like really close up shots of all the teens faces and it's just really quick cuts back and forth with this conversation about the recent tragedy. Better live her alone, man. She's getting mad. <laughs> liver, liver. <laughs> <laughs> it's just another subject I think this movie wants to attempt to address. And we've already mentioned it, which is desensitization done through the media or real world violence or film and make believe violence. You could say video games these days is an easy target. But the movie does make defenses later on in regards to movie violence. And I don't think film violence, real world violence, or desensitization are necessarily the problem. The problem is when you lose touch with reality and equate life to a movie like the teens in this film often tend to do. Because it's when you apply the lack of real consequences that you devalue the appreciation of life, whether that's in film or video games. When you apply those concepts to reality and your appreciation for the value of the preciousness of life diminishes, that's where the problem is formed, I would say. Yeah, you can blame any sort of media all you want, but at the end of the day, it's the person behind the gun or the knife making that choice and you have to look inward and say like what made them lose their sense of reality and push them to do this you know like billy says it, it's not don't blame the movies the movies just make us more creative <laughs> <laughs> yeah again it's just another social issue that i think this film attempts to address but doesn't really do all that much with it in the grand scheme of things but I thought it was something interesting that we could ponder right here, you know? Yeah, I think they say enough to where it's like, I get what you're saying, but I feel like any any further into those themes, I think, would bog down the movie. And I don't know, it'd be it'd be a totally different experience if it was trying to make a statement. I think the way Scream handles itself, you know, in somewhat of a lighthearted fashion, but also like still being a legit good movie and a good horror movie i think it it works perfectly there i think any any more on top of that and i think the whole thing would fall apart yeah i have to agree well said so it was established earlier that sydney's dad was going to be out of town for business so we see sydney exit the bus and arrive at this large empty and secluded home and we overhear her on the phone with tatum and she's going to stay with her since she's all alone and bothered by what's going on. And we see her turn the television on and flip through all the news reports before she stops on Gail Weathers. And it's here that we learn about the murder of Sydney's mother, Maureen, a year earlier with a man named Cotton Wary on death row thanks to the testimony provided by Sydney. And eventually Sydney takes a nap. And after nightfall, she's awoken by her phone ringing. And she answers and Tatum tells her she's just now starting to head that way to pick her up. And we get some references to Tom Cruise's penis. <laughs> <laughs> There's some deep meaning there, right? <laughs> yeah, something about a uh, small, I don't know. 
(laughs) (laughs) So the phone rings again, only this time it's Ghostface. And they immediately refer to Sydney by her name, though, and begin to discuss the murderous happenings with her. And when referencing the scenario like something out of a horror movie, Sydney falls under the impression that it's Randy. And after discussing her disinterest in horror because it features dumb killers chasing dumb broads who run upstairs when they should exit the house, she expresses her disappointment in Randy's originality. And Ghostface makes it clear that I'm not Randy. (laughs) (laughs) He then tells Sydney he's on her front porch. But she decides to go inspect for herself, calling their bluff. The killer then yells at Sydney about dying like her mother and asking her if she wants to die because her mother sure didn't. Sydney gets triggered and hangs up. However, in classic horror movie fashion, the killer is calling from inside the house. Yeah, I like how uh, how keen Sydney was here and how she kind of outsmarted the caller on the phone and is like. You know, she's out on the porch and she's like, yeah, you see me? Like, what am I doing right now? And she's picking her nose and she's like, <laughs> yeah, you're not looking at me right now. <laughs> much A much different uh, way to handle this when compared to Casey in the opening. Yeah. When she re-enters the house, though, Ghostface bursts out of the closet and this claustrophobic fight ensues. And Ghostface knocks her to the ground, and he's running his knife along her body before raising the knife over his head for a death blow. But Sydney delivers a kick to the gut and knocks him back. And of course, the critical Sydney is forced to flee up the stairs because this is a horror movie. <laughs> I really like the shot of Ghostface chasing Sydney up this spiral staircase. Yeah, it's great. You just can't go wrong with a killer chasing someone upstairs, I guess. Yeah, these are some nice houses out yeah, here. No, no kidding. <laughs> she pins Ghostface outside of her room, and she uses her computer to alert the police. And just then she looks to find that Ghostface is gone. But Billy suddenly bursts in through her window like before. And as they embrace, a cell phone suspiciously falls from Billy's pocket. And this causes Sydney to bolt for the front door where she runs into Dewey holding the killer's mask. <laughs> I love ah! his scream. Ah! <laughs> I found this. <laughs> so I think it's pretty obvious that it was Stu in the costume here, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think it would. Uh, if Scream is truly grounded in some sort of reality, then it'd be pretty impossible for. Uh, Billy to take off the costume and then somehow make his way over to uh, Sydney's window. <laughs> so I think Billy was waiting outside this whole time. Yeah, and clearly did a phone switcheroo because it was definitely him on the phone. Right. We see Billy getting arrested as Tatum arrives and comforts Sydney in the back of an ambulance. And the sheriff arrives and asks Sydney to come to the station so that she can answer some questions. There's a really funny bit here where Dewey tries to shoo off Tatum, but she informs him that Sydney's going to stay with them since her dad is out of town, and Dewey's like, does, does mom know? <laughs> <laughs> yes, doofus. <laughs> Dewey shows the sheriff the ghost face killer costume they've recovered as Gail Weathers arrives on the scene a little too late as everyone leaves in their vehicles. 
Next, we get a scene in the police station where Sydney sits with Dewey as he tries to locate her father. And we see Billy in the sheriff's office staring out at Sydney. And Billy defends himself against the sheriff's tough line of questioning, proclaiming that, I didn't kill anybody. I didn't kill anybody. <laughs> this is crazy. He is a, he's, he's a good actor. Because <laughs> we know differently. <laughs> yeah, uh, the whole is Billy the killer, isn't he? Aspect of the film is something I really enjoy. Especially on rewatch, like every time I'm like, damn, he really is convincing, you know, he really does like have Sydney in the palm of his hand, just like playing his part to make her have complete doubt that he could ever be this killer. Yeah, it's really well done, especially on that first time viewing when you aren't sure and it's impossible to be sure. <laughs> yeah, the film does a really great job of making you think it's Billy because by this point, you know, everyone watching the film is like oh it's billy and then later on it's becomes a little hazy and it's like maybe it really isn't him and then by the end it's like oh like i think he's innocent but uh-uh this film has one more twist for you and when it turns out it really was billy the whole time <laughs> yeah gail arrives outside as the media frenzy swarms the police station and inside the cops are doing their detective work as dewey sneaks tatum and sydney out the back after Tatum just rips his nuts off in front of all his colleagues. <laughs> Mom said, when I wear this badge, you gotta respect me. <laughs> As Dewey goes to get a vehicle, Gail finds Sydney around back and confronts her with her camera rolling. And we quickly pick up on the fact that they have a history when Sydney asks her how the book is going. And Gail tells Sydney she'll send her a copy, and Sydney responds with just a right hook, and bam, bitch went down. <laughs> bam, bitch went down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we see the girls in Tatum's bedroom talking about it when Tatum's mom tells Sydney there's a call for her. And when she picks up the phone, we hear Ghostface on the other end, and he tells Sydney she's fingered the wrong guy again. Yeah, again, this really casts the doubt that uh billy could couldn't be the killer because he's in jail right now so how could he possibly be making this call yeah and it ties everything to the murder of her mom which they did that at her house too but this really solidifies it yeah i really love when uh they hang up the phone and dewey comes out with his gun and then he picks up the phone and in his Hardest attempt to tr sound cool, he answers it, hello? <laughs> Not just with his gun, but with his deputy hat on in his drawers. <laughs> hello? <laughs> hello? <laughs> yeah, I really like that, too. <laughs> hello? <laughs> the next morning at breakfast, we see a news report. That reveals more about Sydney's involvement in getting the suspect and her mother's murder found guilty. And Dewey walks in and informs her that Billy was released due to the fact that his cellular bill proved he didn't make the calls. Then later at school, Sydney approaches Gail outside and talks with her. And we learn that Gail has written a book and believes that Cotton Weary was wrongly accused and innocent. And she picks up on the fact that Sydney seems to have doubts about his guilt now, too. And this excites her for all the wrong reasons. I could save a man's life. 
You know what that would do for my book sales? <laughs> Inside the school, we see that it's becoming desensitized pandemonium as one of the students runs through the halls dressed in the costume that the killer wears. And this triggers Sydney, and as she walks away, she runs into Billy, who makes every effort to make an ass out of himself here. Like, I get being miffed about being falsely accused or suspected of being a murderer by your girlfriend, but he starts whining about his sexless relationship and Sydney's hang-ups over her mother's death. I mean, it's been a year. Shouldn't you be over it? <laughs> yeah, it just comes off like all Billy cares about is... Uh getting in sydney's pants here and sydney storms off and it's just like i'm sorry my if my trauma inconvenienced your perfect life billy <laughs> even billy realizes like stupid <laughs> <laughs> we then get a brief scene of principal hembry expelling two of these heartless desensitized little shits for the prank and then we join sydney in the ladies room and we overhear two gossip girls dropping logs and knowledge. <laughs> and Cindy hides in one of the bathroom stalls as one of the girls casts doubt about Cindy being attacked and talks about her mother was a slut and her murder fucked Sydney up in the head. It's pretty brutal stuff. Yeah, I love that this wild theory is coming from a cheerleader. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you get this shit? <laughs> <laughs> Once the girls leave, Sydney goes to the sink, but starts to hear her voice being whispered. And we get some great shots of her crouching down and looking into the stalls. And we see some feet step down in one of the stalls, and the robe of the ghost face costume drops down. And Sydney dashes for the exit past the attacking ghost face and ends up fleeing the school. So, Billy or Stu? Who you got? I mean, it's gotta be Stu, right? Since Billy was just out there talking to her. I actually think it's Billy because it doesn't explicitly say that she went straight to the bathroom. Like, we don't know how much time passed. And I guess you're right. I guess I was assuming it, it was like right after she talked with Billy, she went to the bath, straight to the bathroom. <laughs> well, for me... When you hear the whisper of Sydney, it sounds like Billy to me. So I go with Billy. I mean, who's to say? You know, some people also pointed out the fact that Stu is wearing khakis, but don't you think they'd have those shoes and pants with the costume? <laughs> yeah, I think they're probably using, it's safe to assume they're using the same boots and pants. <laughs> I mean, I don't think they want to draw attention to the fact that there's two people. But yeah, I really love that shot of the legs coming down from the stall. And then you see the robe draped down. And it's like, oh shit, <laughs> the killer's in here. I've heard some people theorize that this is another prankster. But I don't think it is. Yeah, I mean, it's possible. But I think I'm pretty sure it's either Billy or Stu here. It just... With how creepy they're being towards Sydney. Yeah, I think they're just trying to keep pushing her over the edge. Yeah, because that's their main goal is to like, they're trying to make Sydney their lead star here in their film. <laughs> yeah. We get a brief bit of flirting and information sharing between Dewey and Gale. And there's another great 
just horrendous line from Gale when they're discussing a serial killer and Dewey points out that they'd need to knock off a few more before earning that title and Gale's like, one can hope. <laughs> and you see Dewey just like, oh. <laughs> I was 24 for a whole year. <laughs> we learn over the intercom that due to everything going on at the school, classes are being suspended and a curfew is going to be implemented across the town. And as school is let out, we see Sydney and Tatum walking home. And Stu approaches and thanks Sydney for getting school closed. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what you did, Sydney, (laughs) but thank you. (laughs) On behalf of the whole student body, we thank you. (laughs) (laughs) He then tells the girls that they should come to his house and they'll throw a party. And the last half of this film, and we're talking a long fucking half, is going to take place at this party. Uh, yeah, just, uh, I mean, what, we both talked about this before, but uh, in private, but we were like, we both sat down to watch it and said to ourselves, like, damn, Scream's fucking two hours long. <laughs> <laughs> I did not remember that. <laughs> hey, it doesn't feel like it. I think this movie is paced pretty damn well. But yeah, this finale is a solid 50 minutes. <laughs> yeah. And I'll say the movie has done a great job of setting things up. And there's going to be a few brief sequences before we are able to really get started here. And the first sequence is this death of the principal. Feels kind of out of place and lame, if you ask me. It does serve as a convenient narrative purpose later on, but that's about it. <laughs> Any thoughts? Yeah, I agree. It, uh, I guess it kind of ties back into the story later on, like you said, but... Uh, it doesn't make the scene any better. It just feels a little goofy. <laughs> yeah, they turn the principal into a douchebag behind closed doors as he's playing in the mirror with the ghost-faced mask he confiscated. We get a few knocks on his door that startle him, and there's some suspense with him looking around the office for the intruder. There's a nice Freddy Krueger-esque Wes Craven janitor cameo. <laughs> That's the best part about this scene, is the janitor just... dressed like freddy (laughs) what'd you say to me (laughs) way too on the nose dressed like freddy you know what i mean oh yeah (laughs) it's it's not just a sweater it's like the hat he might as well have fucking (laughs) knives in his hand he might as well well already been a burn victim (laughs) (laughs) right yeah (laughs) this guy might as well have been scarred and have the fucking glove (laughs) how goofy he looks Sorry, Fred, not you. <laughs> <laughs> so Principal Hembry re-enters his office and shuts the door, and Ghostface had hid behind the open door, and we get several stab wounds here, and then he's on the ground and close to death. And I will say we do get an awesome shot where we can see the Ghostface mask reflected in the eyes of the principal. Yeah, that's a cool shot. That's a... That's uh, that's worth the scene, I guess. <laughs> and I'm going to go ahead and say that this was Stu. What are your thoughts? Uh, I would agree. Yeah, the last we saw of Stu, he was uh, confirming that the girls were going to come to his party. And I think after that, he probably laid back. and Yeah, we see him turn around and head back towards the school. He doesn't leave with the girls. Yeah, yeah we, we clearly see him in, in the shot turn around, so... Yeah, I agree. It's probably Stu. It's just so random 
And I think that Stu is getting caught up in the whole fervor of everything, you know? Right. Plus, as we're going to learn later on, he has no real motivation for his involvement in the murder spree. Yeah, so all we, for all we know, this was just not planned, and it's just an impromptu murder. Right, I think he's just having too much fun at this point. Like, I'm going <laughs> to kill the principal. <laughs> yeah, he just feels invincible. He's like, I'm going to kill the freaking principal. <laughs> no one's going to be there, why not, right? <laughs> just don't kill Fred, okay, Stu? <laughs> yeah, you don't want to open that door. <laughs> <laughs> we get a brief scene after of Sydney and Tatum discussing the rumors about her mother and we get some richard gear gerbil up the ass mentions we also start to get these michael myers shape like shots of Ghostface creeping about in the bushes we'll also see him again in the reflection in a cooler door when the girls go shopping for party food i don't think these achieve a great level like the michael myers scenes in the original halloween but there's some interesting shots of him creeping about well, my question is, how did he get into that convenience store with no one knowing or caring that he had this costume on? <laughs> yeah, that one's a bit egregious. Like, I can <laughs> I can ride with the bushes, but the grocery store is a little far-fetched. It's a cool shot, don't get me wrong, but it's like, okay, this is starting to get a little goofy. Thankfully, <laughs> the movie dials it back. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, there's there's like this 10 minute gap here where they're we're really just trying to get to this party at this point. Yeah. Dewey's eating ice cream. <laughs> yeah. We do get a really great scene, though, with some of the better movie reference dialogue when we go to the video store. <laughs> oh, yeah. I love this scene with uh, Randy and Stu talking here. Yeah. Randy's working and Stu surprises him. And they notice Billy standing in the horror section, and he calls it out as being in poor taste. <laughs> There's just this hilarious discussion involving motives, suspects, and horror movie tropes. Because as you know, everyone's a suspect! <laughs> yeah, Randy's screaming in the video store, and just everyone's staring at him. And Randy th is convinced that it's Billy. He's like, look at him. He just looks like a killer. <laughs> if the cops would watch prom night, they'd save time. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually hilarious how on point Randy's musings are unknown to him because yeah, he's right. Right. <laughs> yeah. He's pretty much dead on, you know, I mean, he's got killer written all over him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the horror movie trivia really does help in this case. I like when he says, there's always some stupid reason to kill your girlfriend. And we see some <laughs> chick in the background look up at him. Yeah, like, uh, what the fuck? <laughs> Even Stu is like, dude, chill out. <laughs> and Stu brings up the fact that he thinks it might be Sydney's father and questions why no one can find him. And Randy astutely suggests he's probably dead. <laughs> yeah, he's like, the father's a red herring. It's Billy. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, Randy doesn't realize Billy's now standing right behind him, and he grabs Randy and begins to question how they don't know that he's the killer. He's like, maybe your movie junkie mind got too warped. <laughs> I mean, Billy might as well talk, be talking to himself here. <laughs> <laughs> I like Randy admits, he's like, it's hard to argue. I fully admit I'd be a prime suspect. <laughs> <laughs> 
what would be your motive? <laughs> the millennium. Motives are incidental. <laughs> yeah, great scene. Uh, great job, Jamie Kennedy as Randy. Yeah, classic stuff. In the couple scenes that he's in in this film, he, he really does a good job of portraying a dweeb horror fanatic. <laughs> Definitely. When the girls do go shopping, like we were talking about earlier, we see the town is getting locked down, and we get an awesome town that dreaded sundown reference. And then we do see that scene where Dewey is armed with an ice cream cone, and he's walking <laughs> up to the sheriff. And they discuss the case a bit here, and the sheriff informs Dewey that the calls came from Sydney's father's phone, and points out the fact that it's almost the anniversary of her mother's death. So he tells Dewey to keep a close watch on Sydney, and we're off, because it's party time. Finally. <laughs> Finally. Now, these are quote-unquote teenagers. Some of these motherfuckers be looking a little old, if you ask me. <laughs> Yeah, the, the teens in this film definitely are bordering uh, 25. <laughs> <laughs> but since they are teenagers, their idea of partying is standing around drinking and watching horror movies. I mean, that sounds about right for teens. <laughs> yeah, definitely. We do see that Gail and her cameraman have followed Dewey and the girls to the party, intent on hunting for the scoop. And Dewey remains on site to keep an eye on things, but not to interfere with the gathering. And he ends up running into Gale, and when he decides to check in on the party, she asks to join him. And she sneaks a hidden camera along with her to place inside the house. And we see the group in the house trying to decide what horror film to watch when Stu asks Tatum to go to the garage and grab a beer. And Dewey and Gale arrive to the surprise of Stu. And Stu is like fangirling out. Clearly all the kids watch Top Story, right? <laughs> yeah, apparently all these teenagers just love uh, cheesy news tabloids, I guess. <laughs> Dude, you're never going to believe who's here. It's that chick from Top Story. <laughs> <laughs> I love how annoyed Tatum is and she asks Dewey, what's she doing here? And he's like way too excited. He's like, she's with me. <laughs> she's with me. <laughs> Sydney takes a moment to ask Dewey about her father, and we see Gail sneak the camera under the TV in the living room on top of the VCR. And I just have to wonder how many people who watch this today are like, what is that thing? <laughs> <laughs> then we see Tatum heading for the garage, and we get an excellent fuck it's cold in this house moment with Tatum just nipping something fierce. <laughs> Dude, those things could, uh, they're about to cut the shirt. You know what I mean? <laughs> a great pause-worthy moment in a young adolescent man. Or woman's life. Who am I to judge? <laughs> Shwing. <laughs> Boy, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Tatum hits the wrong button when turning on the light in the garage and the door starts to raise. But she stops it and lowers it again. And then as she goes to the fridge to get the beer, we see the door to the garage close on its own. Next thing you know, Tatum finds herself locked in the garage. So she decides to just hit the button and exit through the garage door. But before she can get under it, it reverses and closes, and she turns to see Ghostface standing there watching her. And Tatum doesn't really take this seriously. She thinks it's Randy. We get a great I spit on your grave reference here. 
as Tatum plays along with Ghostface. I really like how she's saying all this dumb shit to him and he's like nodding and shaking his head <laughs> no in response. Yeah, I really love that. Yeah, she starts like faux pleading for him not to kill her so she can be in the sequel. <laughs> but Ghostface grabs her and causes her to drop the beer. And she's starting to get a little freak now and he draws his knife and cuts her arm. And now she realizes this is no game. And a chase ensues and Ghostface takes a freezer door to the face along with some beer bottles to the chest and groin. <laughs> and can we mention Ghostface gets beat up quite a lot in this movie. He gets the <laughs> shit kicked out of him more often than not in a lot of these chases. Yeah, I love the freezer door hit. He just takes a great fall <laughs> backwards. <laughs> Yeah, and then when he's charging at her and he, like, flips over her and lands on the wooden stairs. <laughs> <laughs> it's brutal. Tatum attempts to escape through a doggy door in the garage door. But she ends up getting stuck. I'm sure those torpedoes didn't help. <laughs> <laughs> those, nip those nipples could have cut an opening <laughs> for her. They were the difference maker. <laughs> Ghostface decides to press the garage door opener, and Tatum is helplessly lifted toward the ceiling. And when she reaches the apex, we see her head and neck get contorted and crushed. So, I don't think she's going to be in that sequel. On a scale from uh, Watermelon with a Wig to Tom Savini, Maniac, what do you think about uh, Tatum's fake head here for that split second shot? <laughs> I'll give it a seven. Because they don't give you enough time to really criticize it, do they? They don't, but you definitely... I always notice it. I'm like, it doesn't look that good. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I have to agree. It's definitely not the best, but it's so blink and you miss it. <laughs> yeah. And also part of me as a 12-year-old was still not realizing she even had a face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you weren't staring at any face in this scene <laughs> so who was ghost face danny i think it was billy because we see ghost face exit right after and the very next scene we see billy arrive at the front door of the party i agree i think it's billy my thought is that billy had to kill tatum in order to isolate sydney so that the master plan could continue. And I'm sure Stu didn't care one way or the other. And he was definitely probably busy at the party. Yeah, mingling and fanboying over Gale. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of isolating Sydney, like you said, we do see Billy arrive. And it's when all the early bird party guests are turning out. So Stu's right there at the door with Sydney and as they're saying goodbye to people and Sydney's even wondering where Tatum is, but Billy tells Stu that he was hoping to talk with Sydney alone, and Stu tells them they can go up to my parents' room and talk, or, you know, whatever. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but Sydney agrees that they should go talk, and I love when Randy walks up noticing Billy and Sydney going upstairs. He's like, what's Leatherface doing here? <laughs> There goes my chance. <laughs> as if. That's all I'm going to say. As all if. I'm saying. As if. <laughs> Outside in the news van, we see the cameraman 
Kenny, who I don't think we really mentioned, but he's just cannon fodder anyway. He's fumbling to pick up the signal, which he does, but as Gail enters the van, we can see her on the screen. And so we learn that the playback has about a 30 second delay. And then upstairs in the bedroom, Billy says all of the appropriate apologetic boyfriend crap. And Sydney is so confused and vulnerable enough at this point that she falls for it. And she even starts to apologize herself, questioning her responses and attitudes since her mother's death. And we get more of that cringe movie talk here. I think the movie reference talk only fails when it's done with this teenage relationship shit. (laughs) You really don't like it, huh? The whole, this isn't a movie, it's real life, and it's all one big movie, It's all a big movie. Only you can't pick your genre. It it really doesn't do it for me, dude. <laughs> yeah, but Billy is playing that role of the like regretful boyfriend here. So I think it it works for me. I think it's funny. And then like Sydney's like, why couldn't my life be a you know, a better movie, maybe even a porno? <laughs> she says a good porno, and I just have to ask, what the fuck is that? <laughs> like yeah, I don't, yeah, that's a good point. It's what 1996. Is a good porno? Are they still watching story-based pornography? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, dude. I mean, the internet was almost a thing, right? Or was a thing? <laughs> I mean, Sydney had a computer in her room. She called 911 with it, which I don't know if that if that is real or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bottom line is Billy and Sydney are gonna. Bangarang. <laughs> and it's a real shame that the film doesn't allow Sydney the time to process this. Nor is it really explored in any way here. But it really is twisted to think that Sydney was played into banging the guy that killed her mom, right? This whole like plot from Billy to like manipulate Sydney into like first of all falling for him and then putting her through this roller coaster of emotions and then finally like leading her to let her guard down and sleep with a psychopath is quite fucked up when you really think about it and Sydney has just been completely gaslit by Billy here. You've got to assume that Billy feels on top of the world too, just unstoppable at this moment. Everything is going perfect from con- from conception to execution here, right? <laughs> yeah, so far Billy has orchestrated his plan perfectly. His movie is right on track. During the sex scene, we get some cuts to the remaining party goers downstairs, and they're watching the original Halloween. And I really love how this final act is a love letter to that movie. Like, I know this is a love letter to all horror, but it especially feels like a love letter to Halloween. Because clearly, Halloween is a big inspiration. And. While Scream plays with the formula of the slasher, it very much owes and shows a lot of respect towards what I said in our Halloween special last year was the best blueprint for the slasher formula ever put to screen. Yeah, of all the references to many horror movies that this movie makes, Halloween definitely deserves its very own little segment, and that's what it gets here in this finale with, you know... And it, it's so blended perfectly, too, with, like, this. you hear the soundtrack of Halloween playing while something similar is happening 
in the film of Scream. And it's just like, yeah, it's great. It's like I said, it's just a big love letter to horror, but most of all Halloween, you know, where, like you said, the blueprint for the slasher genre was uh, founded. Yeah, the way they even do use the John Carpenter score is really brilliant. And what's crazy is how well it works just as much in Scream as in Halloween. Yeah, it's a testament to just how good that soundtrack really is and how perfect it is for a horror movie. It's just timeless, you know? It works, I mean, at the time Scream came out, I mean, that was, what, over 15 years that Halloween had had come out, and it still works so well here. Yeah, it really does. It's really crazy. And we also get the great Randy telling the group the rules to survive a horror movie speech. (laughs) It's fun, but it's a bit annoying because when you really think about it, it isn't remotely true. It's pretty much made up here. Like, they're interesting observations, but it's really antiquated bullshit at this point, if you ask me. Like, as we know, Laurie Strode smoked pot. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure you have, I I know you haven't seen Terror Train, but they bring up Terror Train and there's no way Jamie Lee Curtis's character was a virgin in that movie. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's a fun scene, but yeah, I'm sure it doesn't hold up under scrutiny. I mean, you know more than me, but. Let's go ahead and tell the rules. Why don't we tell the rules? Yeah. Okay. Number one, you can't have sex. Boom. Number two. You can't drink or do drugs. It's an extension of number one. (laughs) You said extension. (laughs) And number three, when you leave a room, you never say, I'll be right back. Because you won't be right back. I'm going to go grab a beer. You want one? Sure. I'll be right back. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Like I said, I don't mean to be a stickler. It's a really fun bit. It's timeless. It's just stupid, but it's fun, right? Yeah, it's fun, and uh, like I said, the Randy scenes are just fun. It's so fun, in fact, that we see it twice as Gail and Kenny watch from the van, and we even get a bit of a critique here, because he's telling the rules and Gail's like, boring. (laughs) (laughs) After that, Dewey knocks on the van and informs Gail that the sheriff radioed him and said that someone reported an abandoned vehicle. And it's apparently just up the road. So he asks her if she would like to accompany him on the walk. There's a great bit where they're walking. He's like, do you know what that constellation is? And she's like, no, what? He's like, I I don't know. That's why I'm asking you. (laughs) I'd love to know if that line was in the script or not. (laughs) That definitely could be some improv there. So we get more sex, more Halloween. And suddenly the phone rings and Randy answers. And he's informed by someone that the principal has been found murdered and strung up from the goalposts on the football field. And this causes the majority of the people left at the party to bail and go check it out. So how's that for morbid curiosity? I don't know if, I mean, would you react that way if you heard your uh, principal was dead? (laughs) I will say I did realize when I was just kind of having the film play in the background today that two of the kids are the ones that got expelled. So they have a bit of a vendetta. <laughs> oh, were they? Wow, I, yeah. I never noticed that. That I had never noticed that either. But yeah, 
two, the two kids that got expelled are sitting there, so I'm pretty sure. I, I guess they had cars. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, that definitely makes a little bit more sense why they would just want to up and go see their uh, their dead <laughs> they're hanging dis- principle. <laughs> they're desensitized little shits, Danny. <laughs> I guess they made the right choice in expelling them. <laughs> so as the drunk kids speed off, they almost run over Dewey and Gale, who dive out of the way just in time. And they share their first brief kiss here before Dewey remembers that he's on duty. <laughs> you said duty. <laughs> Gale then notices the car Dewey's looking for, and he's shocked to realize that the car belongs to Sydney's dad. And he decides they need to double-time it back to the house. So, back at the house, Sydney and Billy are putting their clothes back on. And Sydney decides to start a pretty shitty post-coitus conversation with Billy, if you ask me. Because <laughs> she starts asking him, like, who'd you call from jail? And I think this rightfully aggravates Billy, even though she's right to question Billy. But he's like, what do I have to do to convince you I'm not a killer? <laughs> Just what you want to hear after you nut is <laughs> talk about your jail time. <laughs> As luck would have it, though, Ghostface appears and appears to hack Billy up. Yeah, seemingly this clears Billy of all the suspicion we've had through this whole movie. When we finally see Ghostface and Billy come face to face. Ghostface forms this habit here, too, of using his gloved hand to clean the blood off his knife here, and I really like it. (laughs) (laughs) But after disposing of Billy, he ends up chasing Sydney through the upstairs of the house, and she manages to get into some storage room and block the door. She buys herself enough time to sneak out of a window, but Ghostface grabs her, and in the struggle, she falls from the roof and lands on a boat in the driveway. She rolls off and looks up to see that Ghostface is gone, but then she turns and notices the aftermath of the Tatum kill, her mangled, lifeless body still dangling in the garage. It's a great horror and unmentioned horror trope here of the final girl constantly encountering bodies of the victims. Yeah, definitely. We then see a drunk Randy on the living room couch still watching Halloween by himself. And he's telling <laughs> Jamie to look out behind her. <laughs> look, look behind you, Jamie. Look behind you. Y- you know he's there. Ja- I told you, Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> and as he's doing this, we see Ghostface stalking up behind him. And Ghostface, and obviously Stu, I think from this point on, <laughs> is ready to kill Randy when he suddenly hears Sydney scream outside. So he exits the house to continue that pursuit. And we see that Sydney has managed to get to the news van and she startles a sleeping Kenny and she pleads for him to let her in. And he does so and he notices Randy in danger on the monitor. And he steps out of the van to alert Randy but pauses in his tracks when he remembers that the video is on a 30 second delay. And next thing you know, poor Kenny has a slit throat and the chase is back on. I just love that we see Randy watching Halloween and talking to the screen. And then we see Kenny watching Randy watching the film with Ghostface right behind Randy. It's just like a movie in a movie or something. It's just uh, just clever. Art imitating life within a movie. (laughs) Yeah. 
Sydney does get stabbed here too in the shoulder before she's able to sneak out of the van and run off into the woods, I guess. <laughs> but she runs off as Dewey and Gale return, and Dewey enters the house. And this is probably the best use of the Halloween score is when Dewey's checking rooms and we can hear the John Carpenter music playing. Yeah, and he's like hearing screams and he thinks it's Sydney or something, but it's just, you know, coming from Halloween. <laughs> At the same time, Gail goes to the van to get a cell phone and she realizes Kenny's now gone. She's calling out to him before she notices she's standing in a pool of blood <laughs> and she enters the van and starts to call for help but is startled by a drunk Randy who is only now wondering what's going on. <laughs> he bashes his face in with the cell phone like <laughs> five times. Hey, what's happening? <laughs> <laughs> she starts the van and notices her view is obscured by blood on the windshield. And as she starts to drive off, she's startled by Kenny's body, which has been placed on top of the van. Now... That seems like a two-man job, so I think it's safe to assume that Billy, at a certain point, might be costumed up as well and operating again. What do you think? Well, if it were an average-sized man, I would say one guy could pull it off, maybe. But this is Kenny, and Kenny is uh, on the hefty side. So you might be right in that you need two people. Yeah, Kenny's corpse goes flying as she takes a turn, but then Gail comes upon Sydney while distracted and has to swerve to avoid her and ends up sliding down an embankment and crashing into a tree. And the reason I think Billy is out and about too is because clearly they have a powwow at some point because later on we hear like Billy mentioned like you said she was dead and he's like she looked dead when Gail reappears. Right, yeah. Sydney runs back to the house calling out for Dewey, and he comes out of the front door, and he, like, calls to Sydney before collapsing to the ground, and we see a knife in his back, and Ghostface appears and pulls the knife out. And I was wondering if Billy is out, is this, maybe this is him during this car bit? But I don't know, I tend to think it's Stu in the costume the whole time in this late bit of the movie. Yeah, I think it's Stu as well. Because after this whole car bit, we see Ghostface kind of walk off. And then, like, you know, a minute later, Stu comes back with Randy. And they're both accusing each other. And it's like, well, I think Stu was just right there, you know? <laughs> yeah, and at that point, Sydney's in possession of Dewey's gun. And she tells them both to just fuck off and locks them out of the house. <laughs> My, I have one problem with this sequence, though, is... Shouldn't Sydney know that Randy couldn't be the killer because she saw the video too on in the news van, didn't she? Yeah, that's true. That's a very good point. You know, she literally just saw that Randy was about to be murdered, but uh <laughs> Yeah, I don't know either they're being so uh antagonistic towards Randy here and <laughs> doubting him. I think you could chalk it up to how quickly things are moving at this point. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure it, uh, let's just say it slipped, uh, Sydney's mind. Now, do we think Randy actually did see Stu and knows he's the killer at this point, too? Maybe he saw him, like, changing out of the costume really quick and was like, holy shit, it's him. <laughs> yeah, but then for Stu to, like, not attack him, but instead go along with this 
playing like it's him like that's crazy shit yeah uh, again trying to craft that perfect movie and getting sydney's head <laughs> yeah while we can still hear randy and Stu outside we see billy stumble out of the bedroom still alive he takes a tumble down the stairs and he ends up taking the gun from sydney and opening the front door and he lets randy in the house and as randy tells him that Stu's the killer and he's gone mad billy turns to face him and delivers a we all go a little mad sometimes that I think would have made Anthony Perkins proud. It had aplomb, <laughs> I will say. <laughs> he then shoots Randy in the shoulder, and for some reason this sends Randy flying. <laughs> Crashes through a table. Good stuff. So, it's revelation time, Danny. It is. It's time to reveal our killers. We see Billy lick his fingers, and he reveals his wounds to be corn syrup. And as Sydney goes to flee, she runs into Stu, and we get the double reveal, because he pulls the voice changer out. Surprise, Sydney. <laughs> yeah, I love when Stu comes in, and it, it almost looks like he's horrified at what just happened, but then he pulls the voice changer out. Like, oh shit. <laughs> they corner Sydney in the kitchen, and Billy and Stu reveal themselves to not only be the killers... But they also reveal that they were indeed the ones who killed her mother. And when Sydney asks why they did it, we get a brief discussion on motivation or the lack thereof. But eventually Billy breaks down and tells Sydney her mother was fucking his dad and it caused his mom to abandon him. And I love this revelation because Billy seems to have played that part close to the chest. And I don't think Stu was even aware of it because you see him like react too, you know? Yeah, you see Stu is like. Oh, shit. Clearly, Billy never lets Stu in on that part of the plan and the real reason behind it all. Yeah, Stu, on the other hand, doesn't have a motive. And they talk a lot about how a lack of motive is scarier. But I find Billy, with his abandonment and mommy issues, to be far more sinister and menacing in this. Yeah, I mean, there's something to be said about uh, just the killer on the loose with no motive or reason. But at the same token... Someone so torn inside and bent on revenge is just as scary. They also reveal that they've kidnapped Sydney's father, and it's now after midnight and officially the anniversary of her mother's death. And the plan is they're going to frame everything on Sydney's father and pass themselves off as survivors. So, in order to do this, we see them hype themselves up before stabbing one another for appearance's sake. I'd say they both get a little overzealous and careless here and end up stabbing <laughs> each other quite brutally. And Stu takes the worst of it. I like when he's pleading to Billy, like, I'm feeling woozy here. I'm feeling woozy here. <laughs> Give me the knife. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Billy stabbed uh, Stu a little too deep and it just pissed Stu off. And now they're going back and forth <laughs> with each other. I think you cut me too deep, man. I think I'm dying. He's like <laughs> coughing up blood. <laughs> <laughs> Billy tells him to get the gun so that they can finish the job. But the gun is missing all of a sudden. And we then see Gail aiming the gun at them and threatening them both. Unfortunately for her, Billy notices that she still has the safety on and knocks her down and out. And he takes the gun and raises it to finish her off as she's laying next to Dewey. But in all the commotion, Stu realizes they've lost sight of Sydney, who's 
hidden with her father somewhere in the house now. And they look around as Stu, like I said, he starts coughing up blood and he's realizing his injuries are a bit more serious than they intended. <laughs> and suddenly the phone rings and we hear Sydney using the voice changer, effectively turning the table on these two dipshits. And she informs them that she's called the cops as Billy threatens Stu and tells him to get up and find her. He's like, I can't, I'm fucking dying. <laughs> Billy instead gives the phone to Stu and starts looking around himself. And that's when Sydney asks Stu what his motive is. And he's like, peer pressure. I'm far too sensitive. <laughs> Did you really call the cops? My parents are going to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> I like when Billy gets furious and grabs the phone and he's arguing with Sydney. And she calls him a pansy ass mama's boy, so he throws the phone and it smacks Stu in the back of the head. He's like, Hit me with the phone, dick! <laughs> Hit me with the phone, you dick! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's my favorite line. Oh, it gets me every time. It's so funny. I love, love Stu, love Matthew Lillard. Great performance. Billy inspects the closet under the stairs. And he ends up getting stabbed in the chest with an umbrella by a ghost face costume clad Sydney. Has, has an umbrella ever been used as a weapon before this? Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2 has an umbrella kill, but it's so bullshit. But this looks <laughs> real. Yeah, I like that this is just like the tip and it like goes in and leaves like a nasty hole mark in Billy's chest in his shirt. <laughs> yeah. It looked painful for sure, and he drops to the floor in pain, and Stu enters the fray and goes charging after Sydney, and they both tumble <laughs> over the couch and crash down onto the living room floor, and while on top of her, Stu confesses to having a thing for her before she bites him and smashes a vase over his head, and I like she stands above him and says, in your dreams, before tipping the TV over and dropping it on Stu's head. <laughs> Somehow Halloween has rewound itself, though, <laughs> and started playing. Yeah, I think, yeah, Halloween would have been over by now with how long <laughs> this uh, party goes on for. But somehow we're still uh, in, in the house. We're not even <laughs> anywhere near the finale. <laughs> Back in the hall, Sydney is startled by Randy, who's just thankful that he's a virgin. <laughs> <laughs> But he gets sucker punched by Billy, and Billy mounts Sydney while wielding the knife, but she shoves her finger into that stab wound from the umbrella, and this causes him to recoil and sit up in just excruciating pain, I imagine, and he's suddenly <laughs> shot by a now-conscious Gale. So Sydney, Randy, and Gale stand over Billy, and Randy explains, this is the point in the movie where the killer comes back to life for one last scare. Billy does come back to life, but only for a split second as he gets immediately shot in the head and killed. Yeah. He's like, ah! <laughs> ah! Boom! Dead. And Sydney claims the movie as her own. She says, not in my movie. So the next morning, we see a still-alive Dewey being loaded into an ambulance. And we see Gail working with a crew to record a segment on the events we've just witnessed. And the camera pans towards the vast rolling hills surrounding this isolated farmhouse. And as we fade to black, we get one last quick shot of Ghostface. And that's the end of our movie. So Danny, 
I know you said you saw this movie before, only once, but you weren't around for the fervor. You weren't around when it first came out. You didn't have to get caught up in all the hoopla and all the positivity that came from it and the negativity that came from it in the late (laughs) 90s horror world. So give it to us. What's your final thoughts on Scream? This finale is great. I love this movie. It's so delightfully meta and self-referential to horror. And it's a funny script. But above all that, I think it's just a good story. I think it's fun to watch. And I think there is a good backbone. Because if it was just this big meta thing, like I said, I think it would fall apart. But it has more to offer. It it really is a good story. And it has good characters. It's well acted. And I think that's why... Scream is so beloved, and there's a little bit of Billy and Stu and all of us horror fans, isn't there? We love to talk about horror and quote it and discuss these films that are about death and violence of the physical and the sexual nature. And why is that? I don't really have an answer. Maybe it's just as simple as that these films are just good and entertaining, and we're fans of them. And I think Scream is a great film. It's not a regurgitation at all. It's really a celebration of horror. And isn't that what we're trying to do on Fraternity as well? Trying to celebrate horror. Scream and us are one and the same. And that's why I like it. Well said. Awesome, man. So that's Scream. And that is the debut of season two of Fraternity. But Danny. You know what time it is, right? We're not done just yet. We got favorite kill and favorite scene. All right, man. So let's have it. What's your favorite kill? Yeah, I think you're going to disagree with me, but I'm going to go with Stu's death. I like Stu's death. I'd like to hear why you chose it as your favorite. Let's hear it. I think I've established that I'm a fan of unique kills and just someone getting their head crushed by this 100-pound tube TV and sparks flying. And I like when Sydney is like wincing, like at the sparks, like, oh shit, (laughs) like this might, this kill might hurt me. It's just fun. It's gruesome to think about just getting your head smashed by uh, these TVs that are no longer made. Now, if a TV fell on you, you'd probably just have a scratch. Cool, man. I can roll with that. I like Stu's death too. So cool. Good choice. What about you, Sean? What's your favorite kill? Well... I like a certain word you used. You used the word unique. So I'm going to go with Tatum getting her skull crushed or her neck snapped or whatever it is that happens <laughs> while she's stuck in that garage door. It's not entirely made clear if it was her neck snapping or if she just uh, got contorted in a way that killed her or something. Either way. Yeah. I think it's by far the most unique kill in the film. And just an inventive and unique kill in general, when you think about it. Have you ever seen anyone crushed like that in a garage door? (laughs) I don't think I've ever seen a doggy door in a garage door. (laughs) Yeah, that was pretty unbelievable. (laughs) The death of Tatum here actually feels like something out of a Euro horror film, if you ask me. It's definitely one of my favorite late 90s kills. And for me at the time... I gotta be honest, I had quite the crush on Rose McGowan in this movie. Like, (laughs) 
her blonde look in Scream as Tatum was her peak hotness for me. So <laughs> it was a shame to see her go here. I wanted to see her in that sequel. So it hurt <laughs> on a personal level. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. You have a personal connection to that kill. That's great. They killed my baby. <laughs> Not those titties. <laughs> no. All right, man. So on that note, how about a favorite scene? Well, I got to go with Stu and Billy revealing themselves as the killers. Shit. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) What made you choose it? Well, I think with all the references that this film throws around to the entire history of horror, I just love here how like how unashamed Billy and Stu are and just admitting like, yeah, we're just horror freaks, you know, like (laughs) quoting stuff from horror. It was fun. It was fun. And yeah, it's funny. But again, I think Billy and Stu are great characters. And I like the whole, like I said before, I like that there's this thread in the movie where it's like, did Billy do it? Is he the killer? Is he not the killer? And then Stu is such a goofy character to see him be a villain this whole time in the end it's just like oh shit like i didn't see that coming the first time i saw it you know this two killer twist and you know we do see ghostface getting the shit kicked out of him a lot of times in this movie and that's what i like about this reveal is that it's just two high school boys one affected by some parental trauma and another who seems to be going along with the evil deeds just for the hell of it you know it's kind of an interesting take for a villain and like we said before it it grounds them in this reality and it makes it feel like this could happen in our reality and all it took for them to succeed in these goals in manipulating sydney and causing havoc in this town was just a little bit of ingenuity a little a voice changer and a couple cell phones and i think that's the scary part let me start out by saying kudos to the opening kill and everyone involved in its creation. If anything in this film stands the test of time, it's that opening sequence. I think you'd agree. Oh yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's brilliant. Perfect execution. One of the top scenes in cinematic horror history. Scream is known for producing fantastic opening kill sequences, but Scream is also known for really leaning into the whodunit aspect of the slasher genre. And with that, we get the reveal. And here we have an excellent reveal without the burden of contrivance. I don't think 12-year-old me put it together on my first viewing in 1996, and I can't recall even attempting to, in all honesty. But the reveal of Billy and Stu as the dual-masked killers is really good. For me, it's not the reveal so much that is my favorite scene, though. It's the bit where our two witty for their own good killers start to slash each other up in order to pass themselves off as victim survivors. I do remember (laughs) being absolutely captivated by this lunacy in the theater. It's just so outlandish, ridiculous, and actually pretty dumb (laughs) at the same time. It's like a really good idea that's only good on paper, but not in execution. And not to mention, Matthew Lillard just starts delivering some of the best and funniest dialogue in the film when he starts bleeding out. (laughs) It's actually quite fitting when you think about it, because as Principal Henry would put it, what a couple of heartless and desensitized little shits these two are. 
<laughs> so they deserve their downfall to be triggered by their own hubris and stupidity and overthinking their finale. Very unique, kind of stupid, but 100% fun. Absolutely. I totally agree with you there. It's great. Scream is great. If you listen to this whole thing and haven't watched Scream yet, what the hell are you doing? Go watch it. But with that, that ends our first episode of season two. We hope you liked it. We hope you enjoyed it. We're going to be back for more. Oh, we will be back for more. And we hope you will be too. So get ready. Because this is only one of many. (laughs) All right, Danny. So till next time then, huh? Thank you for listening. And good night, everybody. Don't get too desensitized. Go on a killing spree. I don't think you can listen to podcasts in prison. Good night, everyone.